Adonai Echad, Vehafta et Adonai Eloecha, Vokal Levacha, Uvokal Nafshika, Uvokal Meodecha. And in English, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Amen. Please be seated. It is customary for Jews to stand for the reciting of God's Word, and so I appreciate you doing that here this morning. This prayer is called the Shema, following the first word, uh, first two words of the prayer, and it is what Jesus quotes when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And we shouldn't expect anything different from Jesus quoting the Old Testament. Because, as you see, the Bible is one story. It's not two. It is one story. The Jews would recite this prayer, the Shema, every morning when they get up, and every night when they lie down. And why? Because God told them to. For the Bible continues in Deuteronomy 6, verse 6, These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And today, this is our statement of purpose. As those who have been grafted in, to the olive tree, as Romans 11 describes. Because when Jesus came, he didn't begin from scratch. Jesus came at the perfect time to be the conclusion of sorts from one great, awesome story. Now, of course, as we know, the story really continues, but it is one story. Often we seem to want to look at Jesus' life as if it were in a vacuum and occurred in some vacuum. Instead, what I hope to impress upon you this morning is it's really important to look at what Jesus said and did in the context of where he was, the culture, and almost always the passage of the Old Testament that Jesus is referring to. Jesus almost always, in his infinite wisdom, will use an Old Testament scripture or story or a Jesus' day interpretation of that story and use that as his tool to take something familiar that the audience knew and then add his special insight. And Jesus did that all the time. And so today I would like to, incorpor- I would like to talk about one of these stories from the Old Testament and how Jesus incorporated it ever so perfectly into his ministry. So we begin today in Exodus 6, when God promised to deliver the Israelites from slavery. He made a promise. Now the Jews understand this to actually be four distinct, separate, though very similar promises. So beginning in Exodus 6, verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, 
and I will, promise one, bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Promise two, I will free you from being slaves to them. Promise three, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And and promise four, I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land, swore up, swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Now, this may seem like one long promise, but again, the understanding of the Jews is that this is actually four different promises. The first one being, like we said, I will bring you out. Israelites, yesterday, you were slaves. Today, you're not. Yesterday, you were beaten. Today, you are not. Yesterday, you watched your loved ones die. Today, you're out. I will bring you out. I will free you. You can imagine the Israelites, but wait, all we've ever known is slavery. All, we've, all our parents have ever known is slavery. All our grandparents have ever known is slavery. And God says, I will free you from the mindset of being a slave. An example would be being an addict. An addict's first task, to stop doing the addiction. But that does not mean you stop being an addict. It does not mean you stop having the mindset of an addict. God says, I will free you from your addiction. But he doesn't stop there. I will redeem you. But wait, we're still filthy. We have all these years of being slaves, and we're filthy. We've worshipped idols. It is the addict who spent every dollar they had on their addiction and lost every loved one they had because of their addiction. And God says, I will redeem you. I'll clean you up. And then fourth, I will take you as my own. We're alone. What are we going to do? We've never had to think for ourselves. And God says, I will take you as my own. And he uses a word, laga. And that word is almost always translated as marriage or marry. God says, I will marry you as my people. And this last promise became known as the promise of God's protection. So we have these four promises, and then we have the story of the ten plagues. And you, many of you know how it goes. First nine happen. Water turned into blood, frogs, gnats, flies, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness. And through the whole time, God does not need, God does not use the help of the Israelites. He does it all himself to show Pharaoh his awesome power. 
And each one of these plagues is a direct attack on one of the Egyptians' gods or the Pharaoh himself who considered himself a god. And during the first two, which we'll get, in, we'd get into that a little bit, uh, a different sermon. But the first two, the Bible says something interesting. It says how the Egyptians, magicians, did the same thing by their secret arts. Now, I'm not going to try to explain what that means. But somehow, for the first two plagues, the magicians are able to, at least in the minds of the audience, duplicate what God is doing. But the third plague is different. Something else happens, and it happens in Exodus 8 for the plague of gnats. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron... Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the ground, and throughout the land of Egypt the dust will become gnats. They did this, and when Aaron stretched out his hand with the staff and struck the dust of the ground, gnats came on the people and animals. All the dust throughout the land of Egypt became gnats. But when the magicians tried to produce gnats by their secret arts, they could not. Since the gnats were on the people and animals everywhere, the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen, just as the Lord had said. So something got into the magician's mind, and they understood this God has power. And the context is this. All around Egypt, you'll find pictures like this one. Pharaoh, holding the hair of a subject, a slave, an enemy, with an outstretched arm, as you may say, ready to beat that enemy into submission. Big propaganda in Egypt. And pictures like this next one. Look how many people Pharaoh is holding, commanding, to respect him. See, the, an upheld, outstretched arm was a symbol of Pharaoh's power. And God says, I will use my outstretched arm. And what's more, the magicians say, this is the finger of God. He doesn't need his whole arm. He's so powerful He just needs his pinky. So back to the ten plagues. You have the first nine, like I said, as we know. God doesn't need the help of the Israelites. He doesn't use the help of the Israelites. But for the tenth, God requires a little audience participation. Again, not that he needs it, but he wants to incorporate the Israelites seemingly, into this victory. And first, some context on that. Animal sacrifice was almost non-existent for the Egyptians. They had many gods. They wouldn't make sacrifices, but the sacrifice would be something like grain or oil, wine, not animals. And that is because every Egyptian god was represented by a sacred animal. 
And the king of gods at the time of the plagues was Amun-Ra. And he was often depicted with a human body and a ram's head, like this. And so as you would guess, the sacred animal for the king of the gods was the ram. And to show you how important the ram was to the Egyptians, this next picture is from the Karnak Temple Complex near the ancient Egyptian city of Thebes. And as you can see, on either side of this street, for the entire uh, length of it, you have a sculpture of a ram representing the king of the gods, Amun-Ra. And as you can also see, the pharaoh is right underneath his chin, showing the pharaoh's belief of his godliness as well. So the ram was not, not the god, but the ram was represented the god, and as a result, shepherds were hated by the Egyptians. Uh, listen to Joseph's advice to his brothers. It's in Genesis 46, 33 and 34. When the Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians, because the ram is sacred to the Egyptians. So this is the context for the last plague. It is in Exodus 12, verse 1, beginning of verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. The whole, tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, you are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you must take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then you are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of your door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. So let me paraphrase God's instruction to the Israelites and what they are to do to the most sacred animal in the Egyptian culture. Go capture it. A year-old male without defect. Keep it at your house from the 10th day to the 14th day. Make sure everybody knows you've done this. Make sure everybody knows who walks by your house that you are in control of this ram. Then slaughter it. And don't do it in secret. Take its blood and smear it on your doorframe. And to really add insult to injury, eat it. And roast that meat over an open fire so that the smell can be smelled by all who pass. That's a big deal. Every Israelite knew if they were to do this God's instruction, they were putting their own lives at risk and the lives of their entire family. 
Can you imagine the fear you have? The anxiety for taking the godly symbol and killing it, smearing its blood, and eating it. These Israelites were not sleeping comfortably on Passover night while God did their dirty work. Their eyes were wide open all night, listening to every little sound. Is that the Egyptians coming to get us? They know what we've done. Is this the end? And remember, God had not yet destroyed the Egyptians. They were still the most powerful dominant nation in the history of the world at that time. Is God going to deliver us? Is he going to do what he promised? So all night, the Israelites were up in fear. What's going to happen? And then God says, you will never forget this night. From now on, on this night, you are to keep watch. And from then on, the night became Lael Shemarim, called the night of watching. And Exodus twelve forty says it like this. Now, the length of time the Israelites people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept watch that night to bring them out of Egypt. And on this night, all the Israelites are to keep watch to honor the Lord for generations to come. God says, I want my people to stay up all night on Passover night to remember how I watched over them in protection and how their ancestors watched in fear obeying my word. Let's travel to Jesus' day. There was a rabbi who took his Talmudim, which is the Hebrew word for disciples, out to a place called Gat Shamanim, called Gethsemane, which is directly translated as oil press or olive press. Then the rabbi took three of his Talmudim, Peter, James, and John, and what does he tell them? Keep watch with me. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And now why didn't Jesus say, Pray with me? Because it was the night of watching. Jesus was not asking his disciples to keep a proper lookout and warn him. Jesus was asking them to obey the Torah with him. And when the disciples are falling asleep, it's not that they're keeping a bad watch, like a lookout, and Jesus is worried that he's not going to be informed when Judas is coming. They're breaking the Torah. On the very night Jesus is betrayed, he is dealing with people who are breaking the law that he is going to save them from. 
Matthew 26, 40, couldn't you keep watch with me for one hour, much less the whole night? And during this time, Jesus became very, very deeply troubled. And Luke twenty two forty four says it like this, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Greek word there is agonia. You probably guess that is where we get the word agony. Severe mental struggles and emotion, ang- emotional anguish struggling. Uh, Matthew twenty six thirty seven records it like this. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Greek word here is adamineo, troubled, and lupeo, sorrowful, sadness, grief. Matthew 26, 38 records that my soul is overwhelmed to sorrow to the point of death. Paralupos, very sad, exceedingly sorrowful. But Mark records it and uses a special Greek word that I want to get into today. Mark 14, 33. And he took Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And Mark uses this Greek word, ekthembeho. And ekthembeho is the word I want to focus on here this morning. Let me first say, I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He is God, was, is, and always will be. I also believe that Jesus was 100% human, though did not sin. And right now, I'd like to focus on Jesus' human nature, though, of course, you cannot divide it. Ekthembeho means a sudden Shocking awareness to be struck suddenly with terror, amazement, alarmed. In Jesus' divine nature, you may argue, he can't be surprised by anything. But something in Jesus' human nature happened that night that brought Jesus to an extreme shock the night he was to be betrayed. And what was it? Well, Gethsemane is on the side of the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives contains one of the largest Jewish cemeteries in the world. It was large even at the time of Jesus. Perhaps Jesus walked through the cemetery, getting to the Mount of Olives, and as he walked, he suddenly thought, am I going to need one of these tombs tonight? Tonight, I will join them. Or possibly, was it that this is the Kidron Valley? The Kidron Valley separates the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. Jesus crossed this to get to the Mount of Olives. This is Passover. There is a stream that runs in the Kidron Valley, and during Passover, it would be red with blood for three days. Because it drained the Temple Mount. Josephus, a Jewish historian, records 
that over 200,000 lambs are sacrificed on Passover. Is it possible when Jesus waded through this lamb's blood to think, this will be me? My blood is going to replace these lambs. Or was it something else? Uh, Remember the four promises that God made the ancient Israelites. These four promises had become the outline for the Passover meal. During the meal, you recite each promise and you drink a cup of wine. One drink per promise. And Luke records the cups like this. In Luke 22, 14 to 17, when the hour came... Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. This is not the cup that becomes the Lord's Supper. This is a cup that happens during the meal. So culturally... It would be one of the first two cups. We know Jesus would have drank both following the law. So if you can picture Jesus and his disciples reclining at the table, recounting the story of Exodus and the promise, I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And everyone drinks their first cup. I will free you from being slaves. And everyone drinks the second cup. And then Luke records a detail that is only recorded in Luke. Luke 22, verse 20. In the same way, after the supper, he, Jesus, took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Luke is the only gospel that records this detail. And this cup is the cup that becomes the Lord's Supper. Now, what's the third cup? It's the cup of redemption. How perfect for Jesus to turn the cup of redemption into the Lord's Supper cup. And Jesus says, I will redeem you. This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then culturally, of course, we know we would proceed in the Lord's Supper to the fourth cup, the cup of God's protection. God says, I will take you as my own people. I will protect you as a husband, as a good husband protects his wife. And what has Jesus said? I'm not going to drink it. Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of vine, of the vine from now on until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Mark 14, 25, Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of vine until the day, that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, 
I'm not going to drink the cup of God's protection the very night he's going to be betrayed. But Jesus, there's people there that want to kill you. You just said somebody in our group is going to betray you. And you're not going to drink the cup of God's protection? No. I will not drink it again. So Jesus goes out to Gethsemane. And he takes his disciples with him. And he takes three of them. And he goes and prays. And then he has ekthembeho. A sudden Shocking awareness of something where he began to be deeply distressed. See, during Jesus' day, there was a debate. Should the Passover have five cups? We know there are four promises, but there is a fifth cup mentioned in the Scripture. The most prominent scripture was Jeremiah 25, 15. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup, filled with the wine of my wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Because of this passage and others, the rabbis generally agreed there is one more cup. And this cup is full of God's eternal damnation. God's eternal wrath. And one day, that cup's going to be poured out on the nations that do not acknowledge him. God will force the nations to drink it. So, should there be a fifth cup at the Passover meal? The rabbi said, I don't know. Can't, we cannot resolve this. So they punted, and they said, oh, but I know what we'll do. Before the Messiah comes back, Elijah will come back. So he will tell us if we need a fifth cup. And so this fifth cup became known as the Elijah's cup. Today, Elijah's cup, uh, for those familiar with it, is at the table just in case Elijah shows up. Originally, it was the cup of God's wrath for Elijah to describe what in the world do we do with this cup. Maybe during Jesus' ekthembeo, the passage in Jeremiah, the passage of Jeremiah entered his mind. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you. And maybe Jesus thought in his human nature and was shocked. This cup is not going to be poured out on the nations. I've got to drink this cup tonight. It's going to be poured out on me. I have to drink it. No! My Father, if it is possible... May this cup be taken from me. Yet, 
not as I will, but as you will. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Let this cup pass. But if you want me to, I will drink it. That cup was meant for you. And that cup was meant for me. And Jesus, knowing full well the consequence, drank that cup on our behalf so that today and each week we can drink our cup, the cup of redemption, the Lord's Supper, instead. Jesus drank his cup so that we can drink ours. We are going to offer an invitation. If there's something on your heart that you wish to discuss with a shepherd, they'll be in the back. Uh, they will also be available at the end of service today. Uh, if you want to be baptized into the name of Jesus and share in this great salvation because of Jesus' willingness to go to the cross, uh, you may do so here this morning. If everyone could please stand as we sing.